1: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host Adam McNeil. And once again, we come to you exploring my awesome HBCU Feature Series, and today I'm talking with the author of Black Power in the Bluff City: African American Youth Act Youth and Student Activism Rather in Memphis from 1965 to 1975. And its author is Dr. Sherletta J. Kinchen. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kinchen. How are you
2: doing today? I'm good. How are you, Adam?
1: I'm doing great. Now that we got this thing rocking, it's sounding good. It's going to be an (laughs) awesome interview for everybody.
2: Uh, Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being a part of this, uh, this series. Thank you.
1: Yeah, most definitely. And so um, before we get into Black Power in the Bluff City, can you talk to us about your experience with HBCUs and why you think that they are so important and also important to you as a scholar?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I talk probably to my students at my university at nauseum about at about my HBCU experience. I think it, it it helped to shape me, helped to mold me, um, helped to you know foster my um, you know my my love for um, all things uh, black, love for my blackness and other folks' blackness and. Um, for me, you know, coming out of high school was a no brainer for me to go to an HBCU and, um, you know, my dad is a college professor. So it it wasn't like, I didn't know that black professors existed, but to come into that space. And I mean, from, you know, every class that I took with maybe the exception of one or two, all of my professors were African American, um, or, or black from some part of the diaspora. Um, It it was just an amazing and, um, you know, tremendous experience for me to be able to 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 have that to have that time and to have that experience um, at Florida A&M. Also, you know, coming in and having um, professors um, immediately almost from maybe, you know, know, end of my freshman year, beginning of my sophomore year to immerse uh, myself and other students who were interested in African-American history in what it was like to, to be a scholar, right. To, so not, not just to sort of know and understand, but just the whole immersive experience of, um, from the start of the process of, um, understanding how to research, understanding, um, you know, certain academic texts that I know, you know, I would talk to some of my other, uh, friends who were at other institutions and they weren't getting exposed to. So that, that preparation, early on, um, at, at, at my historically black college, I think, um, set me on a track to, um, you know, to, to where I ended up, uh, today. And so, um, I can't be more, um, appreciative and grateful for the experience that I had at Florida A&M and for the professors that I met who pushed me and who, um, even today I still, still mold myself after and consider themselves, uh, considering them to be, excuse me, my mentor. So I'm so grateful for that experience.
1: And so can you shout out any of those particular um, mentors and scholars?
2: Sure. Uh, probably number one on my list would be Dr. David H. Jackson, Jr., who uh, I think my first year at Florida a I took a class from him and took three or four or five more. And, it, it, you know, he just became someone who saw some promise in me. Uh, I initially started out as a journalism major. And I loved history, but, I, you know, I didn't go to school to be a historian. Um, you know, my father always says that, you know, when I was young, I would always read stories and write stories. And he said that my my becoming a historian wasn't a surprise to him, even though uh, I, you know, articulated that I wanted to be a journalist. But he said, I'm still sort of in the business of telling stories. And so, you know, Dr. Jackson early on, you know, you know, took me under his wing, saw that I could write a little bit. Um, and, and and that I could think critically about some things in a different way than maybe some of the other students. And so he took me under his wing. Um, uh, Dr., um, Dr. Rivers, who um, went on to be president at Fort uh, Valley State for a little bit. He's not Larry Rivers, who's not um, president there anymore. But when I was at Florida A&M, he was a professor and then eventually became um, an administrator. So early on, he um, exposed me to some different things when I talked about just that kind of early immersion into into scholarship, um, into to research early on, like just deep into the pool. He was one of those uh, people for me. For me. Um, and, and there's some others. Uh, there are probably too many to name with the time that we have, but um, I'm appreciative to, to all of those scholars who um, saw something in me. And when I um, you know, show some interest in going to um, another level that they nurtured that and encouraged that. So definitely, um, again, appreciate everybody.
1: And so you just spoke about the next level. What was that next level for you when it came to your schooling?
2: Um, so, so, I mean, I guess going on and pursuing the Ph.D., um, um, like I said, started out wanted to be a journalist, um, you know, seeing where journalism is now currently today, um, I didn't have that, that foresight, but, you know, I just followed my passion, but, uh, you know, that, th- that's sort of a dying, a dying field. So, um, you know, maybe there, there was some, some, you know, some, some foresight to not kind of follow that path, but, you know, uh, you know, I, I initially, once I, I did change over to be a history major, um, uh, you know, I come from a family of teachers and I thought, you know, I'd be a teacher, um, at the secondary school level. And so I pursued that. And again, the professor said, like the way you write, the way you think, um, you know, the way um, you're able to 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 understand, um, you know, these different conversations, and 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 um, you know, from historians, and the way you're able to um, understand the way these historians are and scholars are articulating arguments, and that those kind of things, like you should go to a graduate program. Now. And that wasn't on my radar, you know, maybe a master's degree to, you know, kind of be a companion to to what I was doing at the bachelor's level in terms of trying to go teach. But I didn't think about it in those terms until, you know, maybe late in my my experience, um, you know, as a as an undergraduate student. And so eventually, you know, I I went on to uh, to the University of Memphis, got my master's from Florida A&M and then went on to the University of Memphis. And did that to follow in the footsteps of um, the mentor that I just mentioned, Dr. David H. Jackson, Jackson, who was a graduate of the University of Memphis, and so um, that sort of direct um, link in terms of my going there um, is 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 directly sort of related to uh, my experience at Florida A&M with that professor, and so again, I'm forever, you know, forever grateful for that that kind of um, you know encouragement and nourishing
1: outstanding and um and can you also uh getting into the book how did your uh graduate experiences affect you to uh push towards this particular project and uh was this a project that you know you had conceived of when you were at the University of Memphis getting your PhD
2: oh uh, yeah um so uh it it started i mean early on in, in my experience there I, you know i was maybe fortunate. I, I know that, you know, you you know, we as students, we come in, we're we're interested in some things. Um and, you know, some people take longer to kind of find their way and find their project. And I was fortunate to to sort of find that path early on. Again, I mean, it's one of these experiences where I started out going uh to the university in Memphis, you know, I thought like I would study under Dr. Beverly Bond, who, you know, became a mentor of sorts for me anyway um doing things with 19th century African American women because I studied uh, that in my um back, in my master's program excuse me um, got to university in Memphis took a seminar from um Dr. Aram Gazuzian, who became um you know my my mentor in my uh, PhD program and sort of decided to to change paths and and, and study 20th century Um, African American history, specifically the civil rights and black power movements. Um, Took a seminar early on. Um, You know, we were reading, you know, the seminar covered the civil rights uh, movement, the long civil rights movement, and stumbled upon a couple of passages in a book uh, by a professor by the name of uh, Steve Estes, who wrote a book called I Am a Man. And he had a chapter where he discussed the 1968 sanitation worker strike. And again, there were just a few passages where um, um, Professor Estes talked about um, this organization called the Invaders, and it it really was sort of juxtaposed, posing kind of an in, in older, um, you know, masculinity versus sort of these upstart young black men who was trying who were trying to assert um, their masculinity within that movement, but. I had never really heard about this organization and I, and I became really interested and intrigued about um, about their platform, about who they were really um, to start and then their platform and then kind of like, how did that platform evolve? And so that seed became, uh, you know, the larger bud, you know, that that bloomed into to the project dissertation and then subsequently the book.
1: And and one of the things that I also noticed too, um, you know, I'm I'm now going to uh Rutgers University and they have um I don't know if it's childhood studies, but you know, focusing on like youth culture and, and there there are folks at uh records who are doing that work. Um and so as I was, you know, you know, looking at everything for matriculation and I noticed that, um, it also honed me in to read your book a little differently too. Um and so with that, can you talk to us about with, you know, you, you have youth and student activism in Memphis. Can you talk about the parameters of, of that particular term when it comes to what makes somebody a your youth in your study and, and, and a student and age-wise a little too?
2: Sure. Um, so for me, um, kind of attempting to define who would be the actors within uh, my story um looking at again how kind of black power activism um developed um on the ground in Memphis and, and for me the sites of um of you know sites of black power activism existed within of course the community but within local young grassroots organizing among you know primarily young black men but some young black women too as well, right? And so those Uh, those particular people were the people that are classified as youth, right? And so they would be either um, primarily high school age, uh, some as young as, you know, what we would consider today to be middle school, but junior high back then age, uh, junior high, high school, um, and some young uh, early, you know, freshman, sophomore, and college age. Uh, And and then, you know, when we talk about the students um, and another kind of strong site of Black Power activism, um, that I discuss in my book is how black power develops on the college campuses within the city. And so a lot of that spearheaded, particularly at Memphis State, which is now the University of Memphis, but was Memphis State back during the time of my study, um, exists within um, veterans, uh, you know, Army, military veterans who were older than the tradition, who were older than the traditional students, um, I guess today we would classify those as not, like non-traditional students, right? So they were older than the, um, than the traditional students, but yet and still they were uh, really at the forefront of what became kind of um, the the black power Black studies movement at Memphis State. And so um, those two groups diverge in some ways, but in, in, in many ways they intersect uh, because uh, they had sort of similar agendas. Uh, within the city and with and on the college campuses within the city
1: one of the important highlights that I, I found that was really very remarkable about your study so you know 1965 1975 you know important time frame for black power activism um but one of the things you highlight is how black power in Memphis is different than in other cities can you can you tell us why
2: yeah, sure. Um, and so I think for me, approaching my study, um, what I attempted or what I tried to do was, was show a couple of things. Right. To, to, to show ways in which um, the movement in Memphis was, was similar, um, just in the sense of, you know, when we think about uh, black power activism outside of the traditional spaces, Memphis doesn't isn't the first place that enters your mind it it may enter your mind if at all in some different ways, but it doesn't necessarily enter your mind when you talk about that movement so so on one front, I wanted to to discuss the ways in which the movement movement was similar right uh, and then to talk about the ways in which it was different right so when we think about Memphis when we think about sort of its geographic uh its geography and in its locale and its location right and um the, the the actors um in my story who are um sort of a part of um you know growing and forwarding this particular movement um where memphis sits right sits at the edge of at the edge of tennessee uh almost in mississippi almost in arkansas and so um most of these youth and students have ties to that particular region they have ties To to what um, historian uh, scholar Lori Green called the post plantation generation, and they may be a generation or two removed from that, right? So they have roots within the Mississippi Delta culture, within the Arkansas Delta culture, right? So their sensibilities as Black Power activists um, are are often informed by being a part of sort of that different that different geographic space, right? And so it, it doesn't necessarily look like the armed you know, self-defense and resistance movement that we see on the West Coast or the East Coast. But then in some ways it does, right? Um, w- when I talk about what happens at Memphis State in terms of the way that they organize the Black Student Association and the ways in which they try and um, push the campus to um, you know, to, to, to have black studies, to um, open up spaces for black students, to um, admit more black students and all of those things. If you look at it on the surface, it almost in 1968, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, it looks like almost a traditional civil rights protest, right? Because these students, these students in many ways are informed by the fact that Memphis is a traditional civil rights city has one of the strongest NW, uh, NW, NAACP branches, excuse me, in the nation. Um, and, and students are incubated in many ways from that movement. So they take many of their cues from what's happening with the Memphis NAACP. But yet, and still, they're taking, evoking, um, sort of uh, alluding to, and in many cases, um, acting on the principles and the tenets of the Black Power movement in combination Sort of with that kind of traditional civil rights, uh, those traditional civil rights sensibilities that they carry from um, either, you know, being involved in earlier civil rights protests or maybe being the younger brother or sister of, uh, you know, students who were involved or being a part of the community uh, where some of these uh, civil rights activists, um, you know, lived or, or had protests or rallied or organized in, right? and so uh my goal was was to show the similarities um and also the ways in which the movement might have been dissimilar right to to kind of um show both of those sides to say that hey there is um complexity to the ways in which we think about this thing called black power and this thing called the black power movement and, and for this
1: study right so 1965 1975 obviously you know a lot of people still around from that time frame um can you talk to us about um any of the oral histories that you conducted uh for this project
2: yeah um that that was you know really the um you know the study pivoted around being able to to go out in the community and talk to to some of the activists who who were still living at the time um I was blessed um and fortunate that you know once I got you know a few of the local activists to, to talk to me, then, then the, the doors open. And, um, you know, I was able to get in with other activists and and Memphis is such a community, um, that it's a family, that it's a tight knit community, but also too, you know, they want to know what your motivations are. Right. So they could tell immediately because my accent though, it's, it's Southern, it's not Memphis Southern. And so when I would talk to people immediately, they would be like, you're not from here. Right. And then you would have to sort of break that down, um, to, you know, for people who want to know, well, why do you want to study? Why do you want to talk to me? Like, what is it that you want to know about Memphis with you not being from Memphis? Like what's interesting about where I'm from to you? And so I would have to break that down. And then once I got through that barrier uh, and then the the floodgates, the floodgates open. You know, I, I was fortunate to talk to many of the invaders, many of many of the student activists. Um, as a matter of fact, back in April, um, I was able to go back to the university and moderate an event um, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the student sit-in movement um, and an administration building takeover movement that I talk about in my book. And so, I was able to reconnect with some of those some of those activists too as well. Uh, and it, you know, it was an experience that. You know, I'm glad that I had. um, You know, had I not written the book, um, I wouldn't have. I think been immersed in Memphis culture in the way I was. I was, and it gave me really a new appreciation and a new um, connection to the city. Anytime anything is happening in the city, um, you know, around kind of the things that I study, I'm one of the first people that they call, and I and I attribute that not to me and what I did with my scholarship, but the willingness of People to talk to me, and therefore that gave me kind of entree into the community in a way in which i wouldn't had i wouldn't have had if um i didn't have that experience
1: and to stay on the point of oral histories for a moment, um can you talk to us a bit about what are what are some of the What are some of the funnest parts about doing oral histories? Because, you know, we have a lot of people here who uh, not all that listen to new books in African-American studies uh, are scholars, and many of them do oral histories for their own family. Like I have a family reunion coming up at the end of this week in Wilmington, North Carolina, and so I'll be able to interview some of my relatives and such and so we have a lot of folks who are in that space so as a scholar doing this work can you talk to us about some of the most gratifying aspects of being able to conduct oral histories not only for your projects but maybe even areas that can co- coincide with your own uh, family as well
2: sure um i think for me it was it was i mean history is such a powerful tool and um i think people don't necessarily, they don't understand their place within history and they think that their experiences are, are insignificant. And so for me, it was being able to talk people through understanding that their memory of a particular event or, um, their understanding of a particular event, or even if they felt like they were on the periphery, like that matters, right? And so like, you know, you would start or I would start a conversation and people would be like, you know, I don't have really anything to say. Um, You know, maybe I can help you a little bit. You know, maybe I know somebody. Let me, you know, I'll talk to you for a little bit, but you know, my cousin or, you know, my brother probably knows more than me. And then we would end up talking for an hour or two hours, right? And by the end of that interview, I could tell that they had a better understanding of their place, their role in history and, and understanding too, like um, they, they may think or consider themselves to be small within that story, but just their ability to inform somebody like myself who you know didn't exist in that period in time, like the, the things that they're able to illuminate for me um, as somebody who wants to know the story um, it, it doesn't make their role within that small, if anything, you know, it kind of, um, it kind of elevates their place within, um, that larger, you know, that larger space or that larger narrative, um, that, you know, you're attempting to tell. And so, you know, I would tell anybody who's attempting to interview family members, um, to, to not get discouraged by that. I mean, when I was a younger, um, historian, you know, my dad, um, had a good, he had a great sense of, he would always, he was the dad who would buy you practical gifts. So he had a great sense of like understanding, like these things will be important later. And so he bought me like a video camera, um, back when video cameras were, uh, were the thing and you didn't necessarily have them attached to your phone now. And so I was younger then and he would say, well, you should go interview your grandmother and your grandfather. And I would get discouraged by them saying, I don't have anything to say. I don't want to be on camera. You know, older relatives who might be from uh, from the South and might, you know, feel a certain way about you know their dialect or you know, like my grandmother was only educated up to the sixth grade, so she was self conscious about that and didn't feel like she wanted to be on tape. And I let that discourage me. Um, so I would encourage people to not um, allow those kind of things to discourage you, uh, you know, but to in turn encourage and empower the people that you want to interview um, to understand like what they have to say is important and that, um, the historical record is important.
1: Yeah. And, and it's so interesting you say that because, um, uh, I posted this on, on Twitter, uh, last night. Um, one of my family members, uh, who's the patriarch of our family, effectively, uh, John William Jacobs from, uh, Columbus County, uh, North Carolina, you know, he was like a teacher. He was a land surveyor. He was a, you know, everything, man. Like, like he was a, a all purpose, I guess, Renaissance kind of guy. And, um, you know, important forebear for the community. And one of uh, our relatives, uh, w- one of his descendants actually, uh, in I think it was like the late 70s or early 80s, wrote her dissertation at Middle Tennessee State uh, about his particular life. Like he was the focus of her Uh, dissertation so a lot of our family history is in line with that and so um yeah it's it was so powerful um and and randomly i was was watching uh uh, stanley nelson's uh, hbcu uh, uh documentary and um early on he had a photo of him in the Rosenwald School um, in, in the early 20th century in, in Columbus County, Lake Walkemall, to be exact, and so it's just really powerful because being able to see the oral histories uh, ensconced within her her um, dissertation, um, it, it was something that we all mind. Like it's, that's the probably one of the most important documents we have in all of the family. And so, um, you know, it it really just shows in in this very short story, uh, really the power of oral histories. And it's really awesome that you've been able to access that. Uh, But the other part about oral histories, which are interesting, too, talking about the traumas that are involved in it, too. Um, And uh, one of the things that a lot of us have learned about the Black Power Movement was the infiltration that, was um that that took place so um would you be able to talk to us a bit about you know the speculative nature of some of the oral histories that you conducted and how some of the people uh, who you conducted the interviews with did they know that they were you know that there were potential people who were informants and such for for various uh, organizations uh nefarious um so can you talk to, to us about that
2: yeah um so i mean there were some people who knew right so like the the range of activists that I that I talked to um you know would it would be people who would be on the um on the side of those who were uh sort of fully immersed in the way in which in the black power movement in a way in which uh they understood sort of every nuance of it and these were the people who would primarily sort of be the leaders of, of organizations like the invaders or organizations like, uh, the black student association. Right. So they kind of would, you know, I would talk to them and they would say, you know, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you know, they were, you know, you know, we were infiltrated. Right. Or, Or, you know, you know, you know, they were, you know, they were recording us or you know, that, uh, you know, police would, would be telling us and, and they would have sort of that, that larger understanding of it, and and then I would have people you know that I would talk to who who maybe you know they were attending Memphis State during that particular time and were part of the Black Student Association and you know had really fond memories of that period in time uh, and, and connected to it really in a different way than some of those other more seasoned activists. And so th- they may not have had maybe the full understanding, you know, uh, of it, uh, or you know, they would have maybe conversations with me, and they would say, you know, well, I heard that, you know, uh, we had some people who were posing as students, and they weren't really students, but they they may have not necessarily had the full understanding. But uh, through oral interviews uh, and through my own research, uh, most definitely, um, the 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 Black Power organizations in Memphis. Um, not unlike what was happening nationally uh, and globally right uh, were um, were being watched, were being informed on were uh, being infiltrated um, at, at every at every level and so um, they weren't they weren't immune from that at all. Um, and uh, like so many black Power um, you know organizations during the Black Power era um, that that infiltration definitely, had some impact on how they conducted politics, and and, and um, for the invaders in particular, uh, had had a lot of um, impact in terms of uh, you know the the longevity of the organization, um, the demise of the organization, um, and their their ability to sort of um, you know uh, stay um, stay connected to. Um, to their platform and, and implement their platform, uh, um, uh, you know, in the city and in the region, um, that infiltration played a big part, um, in, in sort of, um, you know, bringing that organization to, to an end earlier than, um, they had anticipated.
1: Another question I had pivoting to another space. Um, so just, you know, looking at the time frame, this is right. Smack dab within the Vietnam war, st- uh, uh timeframe, frame um so so can you speak to us about the effect that the Vietnam War and just military uh uh the military just generally had on um on members of this movement?
2: Sure. Um so so the um when when we talked earlier about sort of these different designations between um those activists that I um labeled as students. Uh, and then those activists that I labeled as youth, um, in particular, the activists that I labeled as students, um, specifically at Memphis State. Uh, most of those leading and um, at the forefront of the movement, um, some some were um, you know uh, some some were veterans um, of of the Vietnam War who had um, you know come back uh, to school to, of course, you know finish their education and. You know, going to war just in general has a big impact. But if we think about, you know, the Vietnam War itself um, and and if we connect it to what was happening during that time um, in that era, in that space, um, these men returned back to campus with sort of a different level of consciousness uh, than most of the younger students on campus. And they made it kind of their goal and their mission to um to sort of change, change the landscape of that that campus. And a lot of times we think about younger people pushing older people to um, become more radicalized or, or, or to come, become more engaged in different ways, um, depending on what the movement is. But it, it, sort of the inverse when I think about uh, when I started doing my research for what was happening at um, Memphis State, it was these veterans who would come back um, uh, with you know, an autobiography of, of Malcolm X, or come back with Franz Fanon, or come back with some, some, some sort of radical literature, um, uh, that they would share. And in many times, you know, if you want to be a part of the Black Student Association at Memphis State, the mandate was that you had to read these particular texts. You had to be engaged. You had to be informed. You couldn't just be a part of this because you were black. You had to um, in, in many ways, I don't want to say prove your blackness, but you had to, um, you know, if if they felt if you were going to take, if we were going to take this thing to the next place, to the next level, then we had to have an informed organization. We had to have an informed populace, right? And so a part of, uh, a part of the mission of, of these, um, of these veterans was to, again, kind of move, uh, move the students in a direction and, and kind of make them um, uncomfortably comfortable um, with, with, with moving Memphis State uh, to, to a direction of, um, you know, more of a more of a direction of embracing its, its blackness and embracing its black stud- students and its growing black student population.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: And, you know, to to add another school in this, you know, Lemoyne-Owen is another important uh, school to your Uh, to your study. Can you talk about, you know, and also you can include uh, Memphis state within this too, you know, how did the rise of black studies uh, something that your uh, friend, uh, Dr. Ebo Mexikandi has written a little bit about, and you've uh, cited him a couple of times in, can you talk a bit about um, how the rise of black studies and, and this bit of black militancy really affected Memphis's, uh youth and student activism um as well
2: yeah uh so it's you know Lemoyne is the you know historically black college in the city and um when sort of when i juxtaposed the two universities Memphis state and and what's happening at l o c um l o c although you know you have the larger black, i mean this a small private um you know, Methodist institution, but yet, um, you know, they have a larger black student population, of course, because it's a historically black, uh, black college within the city, but it's decidedly more, uh, conservative. The, um, administration is more conservative, which you find to be, uh, to, to almost be the case across the board at many historically black colleges and universities during this particular time. And, Black students at historically Black colleges and universities, uh, and it's no different at LeMoyne, are challenging the university and the administration to move the institution from a Negro uh, university, a Negro institution, to becoming a more Black institution and embracing the values of uh, the Black power movement, Black radicalism. And so at LeMoyne, we see that students who are, uh, you know, tired, essentially, uh, you know, studying Eurocentric history and they're pushing the administration for more African American, um, black studies courses. Um, and, and this kind of culminates in, uh, a takeover of the administration building within the city. And the president of LeMond at the time, uh, Hollis F. Price Jr. is, uh, he's a, he's a nationally renowned, uh, educator. He's beloved within um, the city. He's beloved within the region. Um, I, I tell the story in the book of uh, he's out accepting the Educator of the Year Award the day that the students take over <laughs> the building to push for more black studies. Right. So it's, it's sort of that, again, juxtaposition of um, the more conservative nature of the historically black college, but a new black student. Um, At this particular time, pushing um, the administration again to uh, move in a decidedly more radical and, um, you know, what we guess would call today more progressive, uh, progressive way. And so um, eventually over the course of a week, they sit in in the building and at the end of the week, they get um, a commitment from the university to um, institute more black studies courses. Um, and the same thing happens at Memphis State, just, you know, a, a, it plays out a little bit different. But uh, again, it's it's the students at the forefront of, um, you know, pushing the administration in a way in which um, to make it more responsive to to the needs and to, um, you know, and to the growth of the campus um, as more black students are are coming in and being admitted, particularly after 65 and in the, in the Higher Education Act, we see. Um, the influx and increase uh, of more Black students, um, and 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 at Memphis State, before you uh, you know you get to the next question, um, Memphis State by 1968 has the largest Black population of any predominantly white institution in the nation, and so um, we think about Memphis as <laughs> a very Black city. And we see the increase of Black students at the campus. And so that kind of uh, confrontation was bound to happen, Um, I think, when we um, we look at kind of that stat, that statistic about the enrollment of Black students at Memphis State in the late 1960s.
1: And I think that's uh, an interesting, super duper interesting point, because when I think about um, just generally... um, you know, black studies. And when I think about the rise of the black student at the, as uh, what, you know, the great Afro-American studies professor at Howard would say, you know, historically white uh universities, you know, shout out to you, Dr. Greg Carr at Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to use that, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. so just think about the rise of black students there uh and in a space like Memphis, where you have two, you know, you have the two main shows in town, you know, Memphis state and, and Lemoine, and so just thinking about you know what were what were their collaborations, what were their tensions um you know potentially between both um institutions when it came to um you know solidarities between you know because it it, it and, and to a certain degree even now, you see some of the divisions between you know historically white, uh, uh, college black students. I don't know how I would get that verbiage right, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, uh, and, and, and HBCU students, right? <laughs> I guess. You know, it's a little, a little clunky with that language, right? It's, you know, trying to sound a little different, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. but, but those students versus uh, HBCU students, right? Or even whether or not it should be. So can you talk to us about any potential tensions that, that were involved between the two groups at this time?
2: Well, I don't know if maybe for me and for my study of tension is maybe the right, uh, is the right word. Um, So black students, maybe as early as, uh, you know, 60, 61, 62, when you started to get that trickle after the first eight uh, integrated, um, integrated Memphis state, um, there would be some conversation when they talked initially Right? Because these first group of African-American students um, to attend the university, they weren't w- what we would define as radical, right? Um, but for them, what would make their experience more uh, enjoyable was that they compared what was happening at Memphis State to what was happening at Le Moyne, or what was happening at Tennessee and I, right? That they couldn't enjoy Greek life that there were no fraternities and sororities. And so, um, you know, when, when you know, their friends would come home from Nashville, from Tennessee, A&I, or when they would see, um, you know, they, they would go back to their neighborhoods and their friends who would, who would attend LeMoyne who were part of these, you know, Greek letter organizations, these black Greek letter organizations who were participating in kind of this rich and robust campus life. And they didn't have that. That was sort of uh, early on one of kind of the the fronts that black students stood on. Right. So, you know, black studies initially was not kind of the push. Right. It was about like if we're here, you know, we can't, you know, be in these spaces, the cafeteria or uh, we can't participate in these aspects of life that uh, many of the the white students uh, are participating in how how can we create our our space where as Black students, even if we don't feel welcomed in these other spaces, we have place and space for us to, you know, enjoy our time and our experience as Black students, right? And so that's when you start to see at Memphis State some of the first Black Greek letter organizations, Del- the Deltas are the first Black Greek letter organization on campus um, and then others follow. So early in the 60s, that's sort of, the, the comparison that students at the, um, a shout out to Dr. Greg Carr, you know, historically white institutions, um, Memphis state, they're kind of looking in that direction to, to make inroads, um, on their own college campus. And then later in the 1960s, uh, particularly as the black power movement, um, develops, that's when you see more cooperation, right? So, uh, the the administration building takeover that I talk about that happened at LeMoyne, um, a part of that was connected to the organization that um, exip- existed at Memphis State. The invaders were a part of helping to maybe not organize, but at the very least, um, you know, sort of be a part of supporting the students in, in taking the stand that they took, right? And so, that's where you begin to see some of kind of the, the interactions and connections between the two campuses. Um, but many of these students were students who grew up together. They lived in the same neighborhood. They went to some of the same grade schools, So they were not unfamiliar with each other. Right. Just the divergent educational experiences and what their campus climate you know, looked like it was sort of the, the, the dividing line between these groups early on.
1: And so, you know, looking, you know, looking more into the legacy space, um looking at the protests and looking at the institutions uh uh and the institutional shifts, right? Uh with with the time that you're speaking of, um how has, you know, now the University of Memphis and um and, and LOC just generally um can you talk to us a bit about you know, what's the what, what do you say is the legacy that this movement, that this that Memphis is uh, a student led and youth led black power movement? What legacy does does it have in the city right now when and, and in the built environment? Can you see it? And, and what are the spaces at which we can see the legacy uh, of the 10 years in scope that, that your study uh, took up?
2: Mm, good question. I think I think for sure. Um, when we talk about sort of the, 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 the evolution of, um, of Lemoyne, um, and again, any instant, uh, sort of historically black institution that's connected to a church, um, it, you know, it's going to have still a level of, uh, kind of conservative, uh, you know, conservatism. Um, that still exists, you know, kind of maybe no matter what, what the movement might be, um, just just in the sense of um, they're beholden to different people than than other institutions. But I mean, I think at, at Le Moyne, when I look at sort of what happened, clearly, um, in terms of a part of what the battle was about, right? Black studies is one front, but also too, how does Le Moyne connect to the larger larger community? Right. And so if we think about the space that LeMoyne are, occupies, uh, it, it occupies the same space uh, of, of people's grocery. Right. And we think about the legacy of Ida B. Wells. It occupies uh, the same um, community as Stacks Records. Right. And so I think the students there were at the forefront of helping LeMoyne to become more responsive to the community. And so, I think today, in the contemporary space, you can see Lemoyne being a partner within the community that it exists as opposed to the ivory tower that just exists within the community without any connection and or responsibility to um, its neighbors uh, So I think that's one way in which we see sort of the evolution of what happened um, on the campus during that period. Uh, I think I look at myself, you know, and I look at. The fact, you know, we talked earlier about sort of my connection to Memphis and kind of what uh, drew me there in terms of my HBCU experience. Um, you know, I, I came with uh, two two other uh, Florida A and M scholars. I want to shout out uh, Dr. Reggie Ellis, Reginald Ellis, and Dr. Uh, Darius Young. Um, and then later on, more followed. And so, um, you know, I, I look at I look at myself as being sort of a, um, you know a beneficiary of, of, of what those students did in the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, to open up that space, um, to, to students like myself and some of the others who came, um, you know, came with me and then came after me. And so Memphis is, you know, in many, you know, there, there are many things that, uh, still need improvement, you know, needed improvement when I was there, still needs improvement today but you know i i wouldn't i would never have thought you know even when i was when i was there uh, you know back in the the mid you know 2000s or uh, you know um that there would be a commemoration of the people who took over the administration building like you walk in that building and they they put a plaque they put a plaque in the building there right uh so 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 the so the legacy of uh, um Of those students you know very much um uh, is there on campus when you walk on campus you feel it and people um on campus they're they're willing to they're willing to embrace it and so you know as 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 Memphis you know you know celebrates its anniversary as a city you know i would hope um you know that you know people would be um you know un, you know that people would be open and understanding to a fact to the fact that uh, many of these young people, um, you know, they're part—they're part of that that continuing and growing legacy uh, of Memphis as a space of of of, of black insurgency. Um, and so, uh, you know, I hope that that's a part of the legacy that uh, you know people can get maybe from my book and 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 then maybe from uh, those those activists who paved paved that path.
1: And so, with that being said, you know, you're at the University of Louisville and a professor um, in in Pan-African studies in the Pan-African studies department rather. And, and, and so with that, you know, what uh, in in what way, you know, do, do you see this book as, um, as like, how do you teach this book? Right. I'm always interested in how people write, but then also like, what does, what does your book look like in, in a classroom as far as like how you take the examples from this book and be able to apply them into your classroom at, at the University of Louisville?
2: Uh, that's a really, really good question. And, and I'm such, uh, you know, myself to, uh, you know, maybe to a fault, some of my uh, friends and colleagues say such a modest, modest scholar <laughs> uh, that I don't, I don't necessarily know if if I pump myself up uh, as much, but, you know, so, I, you know, I teach a, a range of courses, Um, I teach, you know, a course called, uh, you know, Black Youth and the Black Freedom Movement. And in my book, um, you know, sometimes I don't necessarily assign it as a primary, reader. Uh, again, modest, but I may put it on the secondary list. Um, And and so it becomes a part, it it becomes a part of that conversation uh, when I teach about the civil rights movement and um, I'm attempting to try to break the mold of sort of that traditional Memphis King narrative you know, I, I use my book in that way, um, to, to kind of illuminate some other things, right. I taught the class, I taught a class in the spring and I had a student who actually was from Memphis and said, well, i never heard of these people, right. i never heard of this. And this is all we hear about. And all we hear about is King and the civil, in the civil rights museum. And in that legacy, and we don't hear about really this other side. And so, um, you know, I teach it, I teach it in that way, you know, um, when I'm thinking about, like, uh, you know, place and space and, you know, um, and I'm teaching, you know, you know, I'm using maybe Donna Murch's book, Living for the City, you know, and thinking about developing a youth activism and black power and, and all of that stuff uh, in Oakland and, you know, in you know, Kamosi Woodwards. And like, so, you know, I, I, you know, I try and plug my own book, um, you know, some of my stuff from my book in that to to have students think differently about how movements develop, where movements develop, and then what they look like when they develop uh, outside of, again, the places that we um, are traditionally taught that you know, Black power lives here, civil rights lives in the South, so, you know, segregation lives here, you know, you know, integration lives, right? So when we traditionally think about the ways that uh, some of these things um, are taught to us, uh, how do we break the mold of the traditional narrative? So that's, so that's another place, right? And so um, those are some places that I try to kind of insert uh, myself and and I've been um, lucky in the sense that, my book has sort of lived in, in Memphis in many ways. Uh, shout out to, to Dr. Charles McKinney at Rose College. He teaches a class, uh, you know, maybe every couple of years about Memphis and the movement. And, you know, he, he teaches my book. And, um, you know, there have been times where I've actually come to the campus and been able to talk uh, to his students. Um, same thing at, uh, you know, University in Memphis. Uh, you know, there are, you know, uh, classes on Memphis and the movement. And so, then my book is is taught there. So it's it's taught in all of these other ways, and it's directly taught in, in relationship to um, other studies that explore the Black Freedom Movement in Memphis. Uh, so I've been lucky, been lucky in that way, uh, and blessed in that way, and and, and appreciated. I've always said about my book um, that when people ask me about it, I say I just hope it finds its place. Like you know, every every study is not meant to be. Um, the definitive study about whatever the person is trying to make a definitive study about, mm-hmm. right? Uh, studies, studies, you know, make their way, have their place, and and when people have encountered it and and read it and and, and come across it, um, you know, they've been very, uh, you know, complimentary and, and very um engaged in the things that I've talked about in my book, and so uh, again, I'm just grateful. Grateful for it, for it finding for it finding its place, and so you know, I can't I can't ask for more than that as a modest scholar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> as a modest scholar, ah, it's okay. We'll, we'll 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 toot your horn and, and let you you know sit in the passenger seat as we as we do that. So uh, you know, and and with that, and this will be you know the final question for you. Um, so so now that Black Power in the Bluff City. You know, got the interview done. It's you know out to press, and you know University of Tennessee Press published it. What's next for you? What 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 what's the next iteration of um, new books in African American studies with with you, Doctor Kinchen? Round two. What, what what's round two for you look
2: like? Uh, so I, I'm working um, on on a couple of things, but I think for me, um, uh, you know. The, I want to, to stay in Memphis. I, I, you know, I felt like when I wrote, you know, my first book, uh, I'm going to finish this book and then I'm going to get out of Memphis. But, uh, you know, I, I've grown so attached to the city and so attached to the history and the culture and the politics of the city that, uh, I'm kind of in the, 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 the very kind of ground level infancy stages of, uh, you know, doing some work around stacks records, uh, and specifically, um, sort of, um, connecting and tying and engaging stacks, uh, um, to, to, to Memphis during the black power era. Right. So many studies that study stacks, it's about sort of how stacks is this integrated label. And there was really, you know, no racial tension and no racial strife. And then sort of the black power movement came and blew up the record label. And then the, the record label sort of went downhill. But, uh, if you really kind of do your research, Um, you know, there's, you know, some discussion to be had about the ways in which, uh, stacks helped to, uh, change and impact, uh, impact the record business and, um, and, and how at that particular time during, you know, uh, sort of the the latter years of the black power movement, how stacks really sort of became, um, you know, Philly international too, and some other record labels, but really became, um, sort of one of the beacons in terms of, uh i music culture when we talk about um, that impact on the black power movement. And so um, that's kind of where I'm headed. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I'm working and trying to get, trying to get that, trying to get that done and get that, get that out. So uh, there there is no, there is no date. We just working and grinding and trying to, (laughs) and try to make it happen. But that's, that's sort of where I, you know, I envision the next project going.
1: Most definitely, and uh, once that does happen, when that, whenever you know, ain't no rush. You know, I I know where I can find you, <laughs> um, and that's on Twitter as well. Um, you know, once that does happen, we'll make sure to uh, get in touch with each other and and get you on because this has been an exciting fifty five minutes and fifty seconds uh, of life, and um, and it's just a really a great honor to have you on. Uh, you know, we're both FAMU and, and, and as I've told yeah, you over the last couple of years, you know, I always have a funny and, and phenomenal moment, uh, uh, with you because of how we became, you know, <laughs> how we became known of each other. We you know we both and have I'm locks.
2: So embarrassed by this <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, and for those who are, uh, who are not, um, in, in, you know, hip to what we're talking about, uh, I have locks and, um, I'll never forget Dr. Kinchin was the first person she she was the person who was the chair of my um, she was the chair of the first conference uh, paper that I presented um, on Ida B. Wells and uh, uh, Du Bois and and the Sam Host uh, lynching and in 1899, and I'll never forget Dr. Kenshin made the comment of, you know, I don't know, I don't remember anything else, but I remember she called me baby locks. And I was like, ah, oh, uh, my, my, my joints are long now, but they had zero hang time, none, none at all. Uh, some would call but, it the ugly I stage. That, but... I meant that
2: to be, no, see, and, and, I, and I said that because, I, <laughs> I, you know, as, as someone with locks myself, there is no ugly stage. And so, uh, you know, whatever stage someone is at, I try to always be complimentary. So I was like, okay, baby locks, because I think at the time my locks were growing and I kind of missed my locks. So uh, my baby locks. So, uh, you know, it was, it was all love. It all like, you know, we, when you see it connect with black people, you can say familiar things, even if you are not familiar. That's the that's the connection of 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 blackness that we have with each other that we can just be familiar in ways that would be offensive to other people. So my bad, but not my bad. <laughs>
1: exactly. No, no. We 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 fam you, we family, um all day, every day. And you know, it's and, and I only bring that up, you know, this is, you know, so 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 it's like that moment, you know, uh, and I didn't even know she was a fam you and at the time. I just knew you know, I just heard a baby lot, And I was like, oh, oh, okay, cool, cool. And so, you know, and, you know, that was in, that was 2000. And uh, that was 2017, because that was a graduate association for uh, African American mm-hmm. histories conference. And uh, that mm-hmm. was when uh, Dr. Panil Joseph was the mm-hmm. uh, keynote uh, speaker. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that same conference was the one that I presented at the next year. And I won the first award mm-hmm. that I ever had. And that was, with uh, Dr. Paula Giddings, um, oh. as the keynote who is there. And she signed my book, but I made sure to bring that book with me, uh, it's when and be, where we enter. Big time.
2: Big exactly. Time. Big time.
1: Exactly. Big so, time. uh, you, so, so that's why I tell people, um, university of Memphis, uh, I, you know, will always, will always have a special place in my heart and, um, and in, in for, for, for many reasons, but in part because of how they've taken care of so many rattlers and uh, and one is actually there now, soon to be Dr. Evelyn Jackson. I know you're going to be yes. listening. Uh, so, yes. shout out to you. Um, shout out to her. Most definitely, most definitely, continuing the legacy, continuing the legacy. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me. And so, with that being said, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil of New Books and African American Studies. And if you have enjoyed this conversation with a phenomenal scholar, professor uh, in the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville, Dr. Shaletta J. Kinchen. If you've enjoyed this interview, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and uh, rate us, review us, let us know how we're doing. Um, and uh, hopefully that's a five, but we, you know, it's okay. We'll let you get away with a four. Um, and nevertheless, folks, once again, I'm your host, Adam McNeil from New Books in African American Studies. Over and out.